We confuse goals with expectations. So most athletes don't set goals because they think they're expect. They don't want to put that pressure on themselves. I don't want to prove that I'm a loser. So they keep, they don't set goals, right? But if it's, you realize that we should all have goals and dreams and dream big and throw them out, but there's no expectations. I think it's expectations that's literally killing the world at the moment. Ben Crow has become one of the sports industry's most in-demand professional mentors and over the past two decades has worked with tennis great Andre Agassi, Olympian Cathy Freeman, champion surfer Stephanie Gilmore, both the Australian men's and women's cricket teams, world number one tennis players Ash Barty and Dylan Alcott, as well as Richmond Premiership captain Trent Cotchen and AFL Premiership coaches Alistair Clarkson and Damien Hardwick. So, what's his secret sauce? Well, in this conversation, we sit down and have a bit of a chat with Ben about his global work as a leadership mentor, storyteller, life coach and advisor. We talk about his passion to help high-performing people unlock and unblock themselves and his deep focus on authenticity, vulnerability and the need to move toward pain. But in a world crying out for purpose and connection, Ben's insights don't just apply to elite athletes. CEOs, teenagers, retirees, parents, indeed all humans want to feel accepted and loved unconditionally. And Ben emphasises that we all have the power to edit our own stories, to dream big and not small, and to use intentional mindset shifts to get to the seat of who we each really are, not what we do. Here's our conversation with Ben. Ben, you are all about the power of storytelling. What is your story? My backstory, well, I was born in the late 1960s, um, the youngest of six kids. Um, My brothers and sisters are all doctors and lawyers and nurses and teachers. And I think I probably wanted to be a wannabe of a few of those, definitely the teacher and the doctor, but I wasn't smart enough. So I was the black sheep of the the family, ended up working in the sports industry for most of my life. And then in the late 80s at university, I studied philosophy, anthropology, and literature. And I remember thinking at the time, when the fuck am I ever going to use these three disciplines? But didn't realize at the time that philosophy is the study of wisdom, anthropology is humans and human behavior, and in literature I majored in storytelling. And three decades later, that's kind of all I do is, you know, use wisdom principles um, and help people with their storytelling uh, to affect humans and human behavior. So I'd like to say it was sequential and planned, but it was complete luck if I was to join the dots looking back on my life. And then from university, I joined Nike, which is a storytelling company, effectively, whether it's Air Jordan or Just Do It or and my job through most of the 1990s was just to help athletes become better storytellers because that was Nike's competitive advantage against the Germans, as we call them, Adidas and Puma and these companies. And that's probably where I had my first kind of big aha moment, if, I, if I'm thinking retrospectively, that in order to become a good storyteller, you needed to know your own story first. And most athletes don't, most people don't, but definitely most athletes because they get put into a system really young as a young football or a cricketer and so they get they learn the professional side of things but they the human side of things they don't really know and they end up shitting themselves a lot when they get into the industry um because it's quite a fishbowl type of industry the sports and entertainment anyway so um when i left nike late 90s i kind of went inward a bit and started really more out of a hobby and out of interest than anything else just started I guess quasi mentoring athletes that I'd worked with along the way and then coaches and so forth. And then 
when I came back to Australia um, around the Sydney Olympics and with Kathy Freeman, after that I set up uh, Gemba, which was a sports and entertainment company um, doing mainly business plans um, and brand plans and, and so forth. But my interest was really the, the personal side of things, um, you know, doing a personal plan for a CEO or a coach or an athlete. But th- there's no business model in that. It's hard to scale that work. So um, after leaving Gemba, um, I uh, started Unscripted, which is a storytelling platform and did that for three or four years, sold that. And then, yeah, it's kind of where I am now. It's kind of mojo crow, <laughs> which I'm still making it up as I go along, um, to be honest with you. But the the interest has always, probably always been there. If I think back to my story from a young age, the interest in storytelling and curiosity of humans and what makes them tick and so forth. And my dad died when I was pretty young. Um, I was about 15 or 16. And I reckon I've kind of just had, I guess, looking for a role model, but probably that sense of purpose and perspective from that, from that, you know, some of those early days has kind of taken me to where I am today. But yeah. What, what are your memories of your dad? Oh, amazing. Um, he's still my role model and probably, you know, my kind of angel of larrikinism. He was an incredibly funny person and like sort of the light side of life, but he was also incredibly caring. And I reckon I probably thought those two things were quite different. They were mutually exclusive. How could you take the piss and have a lot of fun and, you know, out of yourself or out of others and that kind of, you know, celebrating imperfection kind of thing, but also be incredibly caring. So my memories of dad is very much around around that. Um, incredibly humble, but probably also really bad. And, you know, if you think about the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, he probably ate too much, drank too much, <laughs> smoked too much, and had a heart attack and died when he was 57, 58 years old. So he's too young to, to lose a dad kind of thing. Um, so, but probably if I, when I think back, probably wasn't educated. His whole generation wasn't educated on those, you know, some of those things around health and, and wellness and so forth. Um, and that's probably also driven me to learn more about health and wellness, but probably from a, a different perspective, if you like, more emotional health than, than physical health as a normal doctor. Um, but yeah, my incredible, unconditional love on steroids would be my memory of dad. Yeah. And, and still to this day, probably, um, and the combination of mum and dad were hilarious because they were diametrically complete. You couldn't get more opposite at personality wise, but both of them, both unconditional love for each other. It was, was quite fascinating, even though dad was an incredible larrikin and got into trouble and mischief, if you like. And mum was just complete class and grace and, and a lot more structured, if you like, but they, they, I guess it gelled. <laughs> when you say you were the black sheep, so the white sheep are doing following along and eating the grass. Yeah. And the black sheep is doing what? And and what were your parents thinking about what you were doing through that time? Oh, shoplifting. <laughs> no, I probably yeah, I got in a lot of trouble as a kid. I think if I was looking looking back on my life, I don't know why. What I was, you know, you're the youngest of six. My oldest brother's fifteen years older than me. Um, and the kids kind of range in order. So, you know, the youngest, you probably get left to your own devices a lot. Bring yourself up. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you're know, left to your own yeah, imagination and, and creativity and, and doing things and, you know, probably craving attention, you know, craving attention you probably don't get. There's the Now, if you ask my five brothers and sisters, they'd give you a completely opposite that I was spoiled and got everything, you know, on a, on a silver platter. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I'm black sheep of the family. I'm just probably more more ingest than than anything else it's just i've gone down and still going down a very non-linear non-traditional path where i i still kind of kind of i can't explain what i do if someone met you at a dinner party and said 
Hey, Ben, how you doing? What do you do? Yeah. <laughs> I give a different answer every time. Um, what do you want me to be? Yeah, yeah, and we, we joke about it at Christmas time, you know. And a brother or sister will sit down and go, "Right, now I'm really listening. Right, tell me now, for the nineteenth time, what is it that you do?" And you know, you use labels like professional mentor or you know, leadership coach or life coach or, or so forth. But it's different depending on the issues. Um, so the easiest one is to say I'm a professional mentor um, or a, a leadership coach. But it kind of morphs into different areas depending on the yeah the demographic and the psychographic of the issues. Yeah, you've worked with a string of athletes and super sporting stars all over the world. So Ash Barty, you took her to number one on the tennis court, Richmond Football Club, three grand finals, um, Andre Agassi, all these people. How has that occurred? Like how have you – you don't know how to self-define and yet here you are advising some of these people who are at the absolute top of their game. Yeah, don't let anyone know that I'm completely making it up as, <laughs> as I go along. Um there was a moment, I think, if I could draw it, um, 1996 Olympics, I was over there kind of running the Athlete Hospitality Centre for Nike. And the Olympics were, were in Nike's backyard, American company. So we had every celeb possible trying to get free tickets and hang out with the athletes and all that kind of stuff. And I was there work, working with my wife, Sally, over there. And it's such a surreal world. My job was to look after athletes, sign them, help them tell their stories and so forth. But you began, Nike is incredibly athlete-focused. That is its competitive advantage. They care more about the humans rather than just the athletes, not just a transaction, if you like. So you're having these conversations that you've got nothing in common. I'm 25, 26 years old having these conversations with these people. And I just ask them about themselves. If you had your time again, what would you do differently in terms of decision-making for, a, I don't know, an athlete or a coach or a sponsorship decision? And it kind of blew me away how open they were to talk about their mistakes and their shortcomings and, and so forth. And it kind of dawned on me that for a multi-billion dollar industry, the rules are completely embryonic in terms of how athletes survive this fishbowl. And even the management industry, you know, someone woke up one day and said, I'm going to charge athletes 20% commission for um, to manage them. And athletes didn't know what's – what do you get for that? Well, why is it 20%? Why isn't it 5%? Why isn't it 10%? So – for a multi-billion dollar industry, the sophistication of the industry is, is completely raw. And I don't know if you've seen the movie Jerry Maguire, um, but it's, and it's it's actually very true. It's this classic shark-infested, sales-orientated, promise-the-world-deliver-an-atlas kind of environment where it's by luck rather than design if you kind of get through that without being screwed to some degree. That fascinated me and it kind of also made me think it shouldn't be luck rather than design if someone gets through that. As in everyone's clipping a ticket on the way through as that person rises up to the top. Yeah. Everyone's trying to latch on and grab a thing or attach a thing to it. And it's very fast cars, fast money, fast women kind of in terms of quite shallow in terms of values orientation, right? So who to trust and who to believe and all those kind of things. And I'm talking about the 80s and the 90s kind of predominantly. It's become a lot more professional and sophisticated and through social media and technology a lot more exposed. So it has brought a lot more values orientation now. Um, but that just it kind of frustrated me. I'd seen so many athletes go off the rails for the wrong reasons, if you like, either by bad advice or the people they surrounded themselves with that kind of you – know, um, and the management industry became this, you know, everyone trying to look after these athletes for the wrong reason. Well, they, they could really be complicit. If, if you've got someone who's paying you, you know, 20% of a – of an annual income that's big bickies, then you almost don't want to stop that person or guide that person to be their, their best self because it means you're going to miss out. Totally, yeah, yeah. You're completely conflicted by virtue of you don't want to say no to anything because you're making commission off 
the answers. So when do you say no to a bad arrangement? Yeah. Like I could be the world's number one tennis player. Um, suddenly my management does a deal with sorbent toilet paper and my brand is literally in the toilet, but yeah. my manager's just made 20% of a lot of yeah. money. So the, just the model I found was fundamentally flawed. Yeah. And just talking with athletes probably morphed into more mentoring them um, as a hobby. When I came back to Australia, I just continued to do it. And I guess, yeah, over the last probably 10 years, uh, a few sliding door moments um, that most of, my, most of my clients come to me when they're on their knees, if you like. They've had a crucible moment and they're craving some kind of help or perspective. So Stephanie Gilmore, uh, world champion surfer, she got um, horrifically attacked by a drug addict at the, at the front of her apartment in 2012, I think it was. And it was random. Um but, you know, cracked her skull with a hammer, broke her arm, you know, and she went off the tour for a period and she kind of lost her innocence, I think, through that period. And I was asked to work with Steph through, I guess, through that, that period. And then, then that kind of just morphed into other projects and other, and other clients. And when then, you say you're asked to work with, what are you working with? Is it a, is it a theory, a framework? What, what, what is the stuff of your secret source? Yeah, well, because can we buy it? Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's still in development. Um, now, I guess the 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 question, the key questions I help athletes learn, or the process is to teach them to be a good human first and a great athlete second, to know who they are before they work out what they want. And my proposition is most of them don't. They don't know who they are fundamentally, and so they focus on external things to work out who they are, which you can't. It doesn't work. You can't find self worth externally. If you go external into I'm a professional surfer or a professional tennis player or so forth, you just get caught up in identity and ego and these things you can't control, right? So if my self-worth is determined whether I win or lose a game of tennis or win a surfing contest, I'm screwed. That means for every time I don't win, I'm a loser. So helping them perspective with their mindset on the field and their perspective off the field. So to get that balance between achievement and fulfillment, to find a sense of purpose beyond just what they do but why they do it, if you like. How do you – do that then when you think about drive, like the drive to win, that competitive white line fever, that thing that happens. Mm-hmm. How do you separate those those things? Because if you sep- – well, you're the expert here. Mm-hmm. If you separate them um, and you're coming from a place of values and, and a deeper place, then maybe you haven't got that absolute you want to get out there and bloody go for it. Mm-hmm. So, so how do you keep that drive? It's a short question. How do you yep. keep the drive but also be real and authentic and human? So once you work out who you are, and you can celebrate who you are, imperfections and all, then from that foundation, that authentic foundation, you can work out what the hell you want in life. When you get into that second question, you can say, I want to be a world champion. You know, Kathy Freeman said that at the age of 12, <laughs> I want to be an Olympic gold medalist. So you've got the – once you can work out what those goals are and then you put those goals out in the universe without any guarantees or expectations or certainty that they're actually going to happen – but that's, that's the beauty. That's the journey we're all on is to work out, well, what is it we want? And then you put those goals out there. And then if you have a self-belief or you've got a training mechanism that, you know, in terms of that desire to compete. And if you think about, I define an athlete as anyone who loves to compete, have fun and play. So as long as they've got those three ingredients, the desire to compete and, and you know, and win, a lot of us don't have that, but it's often from a place of self-preservation and that kind of fear of failure, if you like. Um, so it's, it's really understanding what drives an individual in terms of that motivation and then put, you know, give them, create the environment for them to go out there and, and have a crack. With it. So it's not a fear-based motivation then pushing in. It's something no. that's coming. 
yeah, it's very much goal based. Yeah, and then the, the performance mindset, which is the third of the three mindsets we work on, is just to help them work out in the moment of performance how they can focus their attention on the things they can control and the best version of them, and not get distracted or sabotaged by the things that typically destroy performances, which is the fear of failure or focusing on the result, you know, fear of success. So yeah, it's kind of the combination, if you like, is. Um, connection mindset is so connecting with themselves first. So don't determine their self-worth by what they do, you know, what they look like or how famous they are. The second one is purpose mindset. So it's working out, you know, are they just here to show up and make a shitload of money and win or fundamentally they stand for something, they believe in something, there's something that lights them up. And the third one is, is, uh, is performance mindset. So I make it sound like it's this sequential obvious thing, but it's probably taken me 30 years or so to – kind of make a little bit of sense and kind of organise it into some kind of way that I can actually explain it. Well, you've yeah. done it with like a, almost a design thinking approach, like you've immersed in it, you've had the ethnography, you've really been in and around people like that. Uh, you're not just coming in outside in with some sort of framework that, that has actually grown up organically from what you know and have seen. Totally, yeah, and that's why I love, yeah, like S- Sabina is an example who's professionally trained in psychology right, and has a real deep expertise and experience in that. I love surrounding myself with people like you, not to put you on the spot, Sabina, because I- Less me, more her. (laughs) You've never Sorry, Matt. I haven't come from that place. So, you know, mine's more just from learned experiences and journeys. And I'm not saying that I have the the panacea solution to to things. This is just from my experiences, if you like, um, what I've I've seen along the way that works. This is one way, but I'm not saying it's the only way by any means. But it's such a powerful story because it's on the public stage. So people are saying if it works for Ash Barty, if it works for Andre Agassi, if it works for the Richmond Football Club, then can it work for me? Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think, yeah, um, simplifying um, people's worlds because I think the, the world's become so overcomplicated and this information revolution that we're all living through with data and big data and reports and, you know, the management consulting industry that, that just broke things down and set squared and so forth. I just don't think the world works like that. It's a lot more imperfect than that. So bringing in maybe a human language to or the relatability through storytelling if you like working with clients that they're not weird that they're actually really really normal to have fears and and have setbacks and so forth but just help them develop a perspective um and an authenticity that's not based on what others think of them more so on what what they think of them as well i wanted to i want to use some of the frameworks that you're talking about and explore how would you hang them on yourself what do i think of me um well yeah using the same frameworks yes I can celebrate my imperfections and kind of laugh at myself, but I also believe I'm worthy um, of love, belonging, connection. I'm worthy of having a crack to try and make sense of what's going on in the world at the moment. Why are we the most addicted, medicated, in debt, obese adult generation in the history of the freaking world? Mm. You know, what's going on? Why is suicide the number one cause of death amongst teenagers in every Western market? Mm. I'm not trained in that area, but I have an incredible curiosity for that. I've just unfortunately or fortunately just spent my whole life working in the sports and entertainment industry so that's been my um, canvas if you like is working with um, these athletes and teams i'm excited that if other people can hear their stories hear their journeys if ash barty can teach a young girl the power of embracing vulnerability or if trent cochin and dusty martin can teach young boys about celebrating imperfections or putting your dreams out there then for me that's fantastic kind of opportunity 
rather than just seeing them as elite athletes and celebrities and that you know that classic star lover syndrome but actually can see the human qualities in these and maybe relate a little bit to those because i think life demands a heroic response and sport and our heroes can sometimes in an irrational way show us how um and we see these heroes with a capital H, and I think we want to be little heroes with a little H, but we can't often see when we're winning and losing in life. But through our athletes, we kind of can, mm. again, in that irrational, escapist way. So, And there's myth in all of that as well. Totally. And myth we carry symbol. so much schema and myth toward the pressure we put on those people to be to uphold something that we can't even define for ourselves. Totally, yeah. And yet as a population, this is a sweeping statement, but there's a lot of people hurting in the sports and entertainment industry. There's a lot of people bleeding emotionally at very deep levels. Totally. You know. Yeah, yeah, spot on. Yeah, I think all over the world there's been there's such a massive wake-up call when athletes from a very young age, and the thing is the chapter of an athlete only goes for 10, yeah. 15 years, right? So it's so limited. Yeah. Um, and it's so surreal as well um, because if it's, especially if it's celebrity and you believe that's real, and all of a sudden COVID happens and I'm not performing. Therefore, I'm, and, and to be frank, we're not interested in celebrity and fame at that stage. We're in survival mode. There's a pandemic going on in the world and the real heroes are the doctors and the nurses and the frontline front line staff. So, yeah, there's been a lot of real challenges just for making sense of, hang on a sec, I thought this was my identity and so forth. And all of a mm. sudden, hang on, there's a bigger world out there and there's a different perspective kind of coming. Oh, is it actually important? Does it fall away or drop the, down the hierarchy in the face of humanity being threatened itself? It's Yeah, yeah totally. It's I, remember, I remember talking to a, a teacher recently who was also could have been a professional golfer and he was lamenting that, you know, Tiger Woods had just won a, won a tournament and made an extra $50 million or whatever and we were talking about it and he said he was kind of kicking himself. He said, I chose the wrong career. And I said, I don't think you did. I said, I think society chose the wrong heroes. Yeah. In terms of what's really important. Now I'm not, you know, I'm saying it as a generalization. Um, but I think, yeah, I think that there's that perspective shift. I think is that the whole world's had this step back and going, hang on a sec, I've had an opportunity to stop and breathe. What we've mm. been talking about recently to say, right, what what is important? Do I want to keep doing doing versus being and being on this rat race of achieving, achieving, achieving? Is that really going to define me or is that going to make me happy? And I think I think we're all kind of going through that process a little bit. Yeah, you, you've done heaps of work around mindset. Is it a matter of reframing? Is, is this what we're talking about where we think about story and the reframe and retelling of a narrative or what is it about mindset that you think fundamentally needs to change in order for someone to transform? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, there's no such thing. Where do, you, where do you go to to learn how to be a human being? Well, I can answer that. Yeah. It is I, – I, I think the first place we learn how to be a human is from our parents. Yeah. You know, this is the good, bad and ugly. And our siblings, the whole family of origin, as, as we often talk about, is so influential in who we are, the parts we like about ourselves and the parts we don't like about ourselves, the parts we want to take with us, the parts we want to reject. And, and yet that's um, – not the best rule book to answer your question because no one has a rule book on how to be the best human. Totally, yeah. And it, in my industry, we're in the entertainment economy. Um, they haven't learned it at school. They haven't learned it at uni. So it's luck rather than design. You know, might be lucky that you're Pat Raft or Ash Barty. You've got amazing parents that just help you keep that perspective and be more values-based and put on your genes one leg at a time like the rest of us. Or you might be unlucky that you've got a parent, and this is so pronounced in the industry, that they're caught up in, in star lover syndrome. or the, It's called the ugly parent syndrome where you have this transference of unfulfilled desires from the parent down to the kid. Oh, yeah. So they're so focused on you winning or losing 
as opposed to just saying, you know, I love to watch you play, you know, which is it would disrupt big, the family unit as well, right? When this totally. the kid or the suddenly rises up and yeah, you're leaving that family behind. And you believe your self worth is conditional on being a good athlete. That's where the shame story is so pronounced, perfect perform repeat syndrome, where you think your love of your parents is predicated on how you play or what you do as opposed to who you are. And then the rest of the siblings, as you said, they're all going, well, hang on a sec, I'm you know, being put under, underneath my brother or sister because they're famous and I'm not. So just holding that perspective together is, is really, really hard. And, yeah, I think my – in terms of your, your actual question, <laughs> what, what needs to change – I think for me, the fundamental premise that needs to change, and I've been asking all my clients coming out of COVID, if you, you know, let's, whether, regardless if you're religious or you believe in God, let's just assume the world's trying to tell us something. What do you reckon she's trying to tell you? And the overwhelming question, uh, comment coming back is they just want to do less and be more, mm. you know, um, and it's what they're actually saying is if I feel like I have to continually do something or achieve something, that busy, 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 in order to be someone, They'll never be content or satisfied or enough. They'll never feel they're enough. Exactly. They never feel unconditional love because that their love is conditional upon having to do something. Or have have they something. already passed the threshold? They can never go back to being ordinary again because they've already moved into a hero status. How do you help yeah. them come back and anchor in the ordinary or yeah. in themselves? To, to identify what's real and what what's not real, and to separate the person from the persona and their self worth from their business card. So if you've if you've just been laid off in COVID or you've lost a lot of money and so forth and you believe that's who you are, then you're effectively saying, I'm a loser. Uh-uh, hang on. That's what you do. That's not who you are. That doesn't define the depth of you and separating of that is so important. How do you best pull out who you are, not not what you do? Yeah, to, to create an unconditional self-worth and a, and a narrative by understanding, okay, that's what I do. Who I am is, well, there's many different ways you can make sense of your life story but but basically finding these positive affirmation based not based on what i look like or so it's, it's qualities within i'm compassionate i'm thoughtful i'm sensitive i'm Spot empathetic on. i'm funny so it's it's intrinsic motivations that drive us not the extrinsic and the intrinsic is exactly what you said sabina what are my values what am i what is my purpose if mm-hmm. you like you know my earliest happiest memories you know what would i say about those memories because in those memories i am loved i'm happy i'm worthy i'm excited and so forth so you find these stories on, on the premise that we are the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves how we find these stories that are more you know um, positive and affirmation based and unconditional they're not conditional upon mm. having to please someone or do something in order to find that self-worth do you think we all come into the world this is a philosophical question it's a million dollar question yeah do we come into the world like that does everyone come into the world unconditionally loved or able to be unconditionally loved and then it's through trauma and experience that, that that is undone? Yeah, it's a hell of a good question. Um, where does the unconditional love and that innocence that you have suddenly become conditional where you lose that innocence and you tell yourself a certain story? I believe we start off from a place of unconditional love and that innocence and adventure that we have as children um, somehow through, I don't know, fear of abandonment or certain narratives compar- comparing yourself, you know, um, and, yeah, the stories we tell ourselves, I guess, from a pretty young age. And I think, you know, if someone says, where does shame even come from? Um, my loose answer to that is, you know, I believe we, we crave the love we felt like we didn't get enough of yeah. at, in, in our youth. And as a consequence of craving that love, 
we didn't get enough of, we feel like we have to, I don't know, do something or be something or achieve something to overcompensate, right? Um, it might have to be a, the pleaser at school or the good student or the good athlete or the good musician. And if that happens, that's the first time shame appears in your life. It's the first time you tell yourself that story that I'm not loved unconditionally. It's conditional upon mm. doing or achieving something. Mm. And I reckon that shame just continually appears at different junctions in our life, yeah. at different conditions, when again you tell yourself that story that maybe I'm not good enough for this this relationship or I've just been promoted, maybe I'm not good enough for this role and that imposter syndrome kind of kicks in and you go, shit, you know, so nothing's changed other than the label or story we're telling ourselves. Or well, the and language, the, the way. The yeah. theme's the same. Yeah, yeah totally. Do you, with that, so where you talk about trying to get people then away from um, what they do and more into who they are and then moving toward their deep self, their values and, and the human inside. So with storytelling, um, Joseph Conrad's work with The Hero's Journey is yeah. massive where you have to kind of move toward pain, slay your dragon, you have to go toward the dark to come up into the light. Is that something that you believe needs to happen in order for people to then bring up those values and then transform themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They yeah. have to face bad shit. Absolutely. The hero's journey is the greatest framework ever invented for Hollywood and the greatest storytelling framework for individuals. And I use it all the time with with clients to kind of work through chapter one, it's all about me, 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 I, 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 I win a race, I get a blue ribbon, I study hard, I get an A. We get recognised for achievement and it makes us feel significant on an individual level. In that chapter two that you referenced, we start having these crucible moments, these life-altering moments. Are you the mentor that travels? Yeah. You know, yeah. You know in the story they have the yeah, mentor? Yeah. yeah. Maybe. A little bit of Yoda-ish. Um, yeah. But the, the goal for me is to help them lean into these crucible moments that might they might have been denying, if you like, and so that can create post-traumatic growth rather than post-traumatic stress. So help them make sense of these shitty moments that they've had in their lives that, that where they've accidentally or inadvertently attach their self-worth to these experiences or events and therefore telling themselves that they're not good enough or loved enough and then reframe those moments and then come out of those with a different perspective and say, yeah, that shit happened in my life but that's not who I am. I'm not going to let that negative experience define me. I'm going to let the courage to get over that moment define me in order to get into that chapter three of the hero's journey where you can kind of find your bliss or find your perspective. Mm. And then go back to the village enlightened. Do you yeah. worry when you take them to the dra- toward the darkness and the dragon's mouth, do you worry about your responsibility in taking them to that moment that you might lose them, they might die? I don't take them too far down that path because I'm not trained to go down a certain, a certain path. So I'll be very careful how far I take them into the chapter two area. Um, and from a leadership point of view, because a lot of the hero's journey that we did originally just came out of leadership work, um, there's typically five hero hazards that we need to overcome in that chapter two in order to get into chapter three. So I might be the imposter, so, you know, imposter syndrome. I might be the rationalizer. So that's someone who hasn't established their values and they're in denial. They're making excuses for themselves the whole way. I might be the loner. That's the person who thinks he, he or she has to do everything on their own. Asking questions is a weakness. Doesn't create mentors in their lives and those things. And you know, the classic Aussie stoic alpha male really. The fourth one is the glory seeker, the person who thinks they have to get all the credit for everything. And it's typically someone who's, who's so extrinsically motivated because they want the external recognition that they haven't developed their intrinsic motivations to what Sabina said earlier and the last one is the shooting star so that's the person who works his or her ass off and achieves an enormous amount in a short amount of time but typically leaves a trail of carnage and destruction behind them in terms of their family or their their friends and colleagues now we all have elements of those five archetypes in all of us right it's just that some are more pronounced than others so i guess i help 
them understand which ones they might be more archetypal for them so that the good news is there's antidotes to all of them and then they can work through those antidotes in order to get into that chapter three. So the, the amount of trauma, if you like, of the dark side that are, the, you know, are probably um, curious around it but I'll never go too far just in terms of my role. And yet I imagine you have worked with people, some who get more stuck in some of the work you do with them than others. So you may be talking about that sounds like it's conditional and them not almost being able to understand the question because that's so embedded in their self-identity. What's I don't need names, but can you share a story? Because I think for listeners who are thinking this all sounds too easy, you know, you just sort of yeah, why can't steps I one, be two, agassi. and three, and then you, well, not even this. I'm not thinking, of course, through the sports lens because it's less meaningful to me, but more to the to the relief and the freedom and the aha moments and, you know, everyone's about to win a car on the Oprah show. And it's not like that even with Ben Crow. <laughs> it's totally messy. It's, <laughs> it's totally messy. imperfect. And it, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's not sequential in that way and there's ups and downs. Yeah, yeah. so share, us, share with us, um, you know, like a really what, – what's an example or a story you've got of someone without the name, as I said, who's, who's really got stuck or who's, who hasn't progressed in the way that you would have hoped? And what did you do with it? Pretty much every client is at a different stage and learns in a different way um, relative to, you know, their journey and what their blockages are and so forth. And eventually you just keep teasing and teasing and teasing away almost the same themes and, and, or from a different angle or a different perspective or a different story, hoping that it unblocks a certain negative narrative that they're telling themselves because, you know, as we've discussed, our brains are like Velcro for negative experiences and Teflon for positive ones. So ripping and creating that getting rid of that velcro it's so stuck and embedded and rooted in a certain narrative that's been conditioned their whole way by their greatest role models their mum and dad in a lot of cases it involves having discussions with their mum and dad and part of the process so when i work with a client i also work with people that know them better than they know themselves which is typically their partner or their brothers and sisters or or their parents first and foremost i guess is their greatest role models to kind of get an understanding for along their hero's journey when they go through things it's not so much what they say but what they leave out mm -hmm. so you'd be amazed the amount of you know um people that will give me their life story and you know um conveniently leave out that their parents split up when they were 12 years old or 13 years old and so kind of getting close to those blockages and, and so do you talk them. to all the people around them like a 360 as much as you can absolutely to yeah. find out what's what's the collective story really correct than, yep to mm. try and find themes and through pattern recognition to try and understand okay is there a certain theme or here or a certain pattern here that there's a certain blind spot that by definition they can't see them when they're blind to them that maybe the people closest to them have been aware of for some time, but they haven't had that safety and permission to have that conversation. So the process can then often create safety and permission to have a deeper conversation that, that you know, without a process like that, there's no, you, you don't often have those incredibly deep conversations with people unless it's a, you know, intervention per se. Yes. Which is, yeah. What about if a parent has um, died or doesn't want to participate in the process? Mm -hmm. Yeah. If they don't want to participate, yeah, that's often an insight in itself yeah. as to, okay, what, what are we in denial of or what are we not confronting or, and so forth. So, you know, um, and we're human, right? So there's not one of us that aren't going to fall back and get distracted again through a different distraction in a different condition and so forth. So it's not like you do a process and then you're away. Yeah. Because sometimes the greatest crucible moment 
in my industry can be success in terms of how it's defined externally. Because if you've accidentally determined your self-worth by winning a, you know, a Grand Slam or a World Surfing title or a premiership or whatever, and you win that and you still don't feel enough, then that can, you know, that can exacerbate this, well, geez, what, what else do I have to do to feel worthy? You know? mm. What do I have to do? I'm famous or I'm rich. I've got to have done all these achievements sort of things. And it's, it's so predicated. And at Nike I saw it a lot with you know, Tiger Woods and Lance Armstrong, and we were part of the problem to a certain level in the sense that we deliberately put athletes up in messiah yeah. mentality because yep. that's the highest positioning from a hero point of view, right? Now, the athletes can make an extraordinary amount of money out of that and so did we at Nike, right, in terms of the, that positioning. The problem is it's not real mm. and if you believe it's real and you get caught up in that, that's a persona, the fall from grace, which unfortunately you know, both examples have had, mm. It's huge <laughs> when you fall from that that mantle, that um, messiah mentality. So, again, it's there. It's, it's a storytelling industry, and whoever tells the best story wins. Yeah. Whether you're a consumer brand, whether you're a sports organization, whether you're a film, whatever, you got to remember that it's not real. Yeah. You know, we need more people to understand that. And fame, like, what is that? You know, what, this this craving of recognition and this social status and. The, re- the research I saw recently, which scares the hell out of me at the moment, is um, a study done on, te- on primary school age kids. It's been a global study for the last five decades, started in the 1970s. And in the 70s and 80s and, and 90s, the number one goal, motivation for these you know, 10, 12-year-old kids was to be part of a community mm. in terms of a friendship group. And number 16 was to be rich, number 17 was to be famous. Well, since the advent of technology and social media and reality TV, right, the research now, the number one goal for kids all over the world be famous. is to be famous, yeah. right? The number two goal is to be rich. The number 17th goal is to be part of a community in terms of a friendship group. Mm. And we wonder why anxiety and depression has skyrocketed. Totally. But that number one goal to be famous, it's effectively saying I want to be recognised by others, mm. which basically is saying I want them to give me what I'm not prepared to give myself mm. i don't know how to give myself yeah. Or yeah perhaps i have never felt from others yeah, yeah. to be to, to be recognized by others rather than recognizing myself yeah. or celebrating myself yeah. is so screwed up yeah. it's right. terrible and, it, and the irony the, the terrible irony we have never been more connected digitally yeah. through technology and we are so disconnected yeah. from the online and offline self there's such a discordance for young people around what they put out and what they edit and the story they tell there and what's actually going on yep. deep in their lives. Absolutely. Yeah, and the reason that is is 15 years ago when this technology was thrown out in the universe called social media, storytelling used to be a trained profession. You'd go to university, you'd study graphic design or communications or advertising or journalism, whatever. And if you studied those courses, you'd learn intention, empathy and objective. Well, 15 years ago, that was just this technology is thrown out and Twitter is, what, 13 years old this year. It democratised storytelling for the whole world. Now there's 3 billion In 15 characters or whatever. But mm. we, were never, we never learnt intention or empathy for others. Mm. So what we did 15 years ago, we started focusing on ourself, self, 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 self-absorbed, self-obsessed. The cult of the individualism. Selfie, the cult of self, cult of individualism, caring what others think about me, exacerbating perfection myth. 
especially for young girls on Instagram. So the reframing of that and understanding, well, hang on a sec, if I'm focusing on myself, I'm going to be suffering in some way, shape or form, as opposed to caring about others or having fun, taking the piss, celebrating imperfections in terms of imagery and so forth. Totally. Are you also working with athletes or anybody, any human for that matter, when they're not at the peak of their game? Mm-hmm. So for people who have retired? Professional yeah. athletes who have retired? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I'm on the board of the AFL Coaches Association for that reason. Uh. I'm fascinated on – and to be frank, that's my goals with my professional athletes at the moment. I mean, I get paid through their profession, I guess, but my KPI is how they turn out five yeah. years after as a good mum or sister or brother or, or friend, if you like, how they become a good human first. Mm helps them in their professional career to play better but also retire better. Yes, and live better and be better. Yeah, because it's such a small chapter. Mm. And if you're defining yourself by that chapter, what happens at the end? Yeah. Are you worthless? Are you a piece of shit now because you're no longer coaching or or playing? And it's a real thing, Sabina, like in the industry. It's an incredible thing where their self-worth has been predicated on this. Yeah. And you ask Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones why they're still performing in their 70s and he'll say we're addicted to the adrenaline rush of playing in front of 75 80,000 people that dopamine hit that they get from that mm. that they haven't been able to unfortunately find that and you just yeah. want to say have a family start having kids but they've right? done that yeah. you don't think mick's had sex no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah good point good point it, well then it then becomes the prioritization of what motivates them and this is probably the other big thing that i'm really noticing at the moment and coming off the back of the royal commission in australia and banking working with quite a few clients in that industry and since that there's there's an entire generation of 50 plus alpha males who have woken up and they've realized they've achieved but they're not fulfilled they've made a shitload of money extrinsically motivated to the detriment of intrinsic motivations, mm. things that really, you know, mm. light them up, their sense of meaning and purpose and contribution. And the kids have all, you left know, home. left school, left home. Mm. They think, geez, what just happened in the last two decades in mm. terms of my perspective? So, yeah, these these distractions aren't just in the entertainment economy. No. They're everywhere for mm. us in terms of what game are we playing, really? What's important? Mm. You know, why am I so important? Why do I spend so much time caring what others think about me and, and letting them interfere in my life. We're all on different journeys. Right? And, and, and for them, those people showing up to win, then victory is it's empty for the victor if they can't share that anyway. Totally. So maybe that distinction is, you, you know, you've talked about showing like the idea of showing up to win or showing up to light up, to actually light up with the purpose and the moment itself and that shared feeling of achieving something rather than just being the lonely person at the top of the mountain spot on yeah yeah and do that for intrinsic purposes not extrinsic and intrinsic might be realizing my potential in life or putting myself out of my comfort zone or helping others yeah impacting others yeah so that's what i mean by intrinsic motivations Mm. um and i think we've just been extrinsic motivations aren't bad right and validation that you you know you've put yourself out there you're achieving goals and so forth it's when they become the alternative to intrinsic that's when i think we've got we've lost balance or perspective ben with everything you've said today what would you tell your 12 year old self because you you said that you were the youngest of six and then they were all teachers and doctors and important people in the world with better knees and better (laughs) belly buttons than you have (laughs) that was a Tourette's moment i can't believe i said that and uh that that infers that it wasn't until they graduated and you and you graduated and you were working and they were working that you you thought that they were bigger and better than you. But I have a sense that you thought that when you were younger than 
you know, when you were a 10-year-old or a 5-year-old or yep. I don't know when you first had awareness of that. What would you tell that, that self now? That 12-year-old? Yeah. Uh, I'd tell him to continue to have fun, to celebrate life. Uh, and celebrate others because I think I've always I've always had an element of that, always been interested in others more so than just being interesting, to lean in rather than lean back um, in terms of we're all scared and all have fears and so forth. And, yeah, probably be more present <laughs> and it will be okay, yeah. I guess. Mum's very religious, very Catholic, and from a spiritual point of view, I think we've all kind of – well, I, I certainly have anyway, have, have maintained that spirituality that there's no certainties in life, but you put things out there in the universe, you know, um, and, and kind of see what happens. And I, I genuinely believe that. Most of us don't have the, the courage to dream or dream big, so we dream small, but it kind of takes the same amount of energy to dream big. So why wouldn't you dream big and why, can, you know, why not me and, and why not now, if you yeah. like, in terms of that? When my dad died, I think it was my mom or my uncle who said to me, you realise you've got an angel now that you can talk to every day. And I never forgot that. And whenever I was scared and so forth, I always lent in on, on dad, can you help me through this and so forth. And that's kind of stayed with me um, and not be afraid to dream, mm. you know, dream up opportunities because there's, you know, you, you look at my path, there's, there's nothing logical about it whatsoever and you can only join the dots looking back on your life. But I think – for me, any success I've had has probably been predicated on that curiosity and yeah. care for others, the genuine interest, but also just throwing these goals out in the universe. You know, um, I lost my best friend to a car accident when he was 21 years old. And I remember, and I gave his eulogy at, uh, at his funeral, and I remember talking about it with his, his mum, and he was the only person that I ever said that I wanted to work for Nike. We're talking about our dream jobs. He died a few weeks later. Three months later, I get a phone call from Nike out of the blue <laughs> asking if I'd come in for a job interview and I just started laughing. I was going, oh, my God, this is ridiculous. And I kind of looked up to the skies and then Strikey, thanks. His mm. name was Simon Strike. And I think the world happens for us, not to us. Mm. And we just got to work out where the benefit is, put those goals out in the universe, no guarantees, no expectations and no certainties. But I think that's just called living and I think, yeah, so that's – I probably wouldn't say to my 12-year-old in, in an intellectual way, but I think the inferences of those themes of curiosity, uh, caring, having fun like my dad did um, and just putting these dreams out in the universe and see what happens, I guess. Yeah, I love that. It takes more energy to dream small than dream big. <laughs> That's quite powerful. In a, yeah. 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 We're just constraining yourself rather than letting yourself unfurl and explore and see what's possible if you actually release yourself out there. Totally. The reason that is is because we confuse goals with expectations. So most athletes don't set goals because they think they're expect. They don't want to put that pressure on themselves. I don't want to prove that I'm a loser. So they keep. they don't set goals, right? But if once you realise that, we should all have goals and dreams and dream big and throw them out, but there's no expectations. I think it's expectations that's literally killing the world at the moment because it used to be – expectation used to be something that I can control 100% of the time, hence you expect the outcome. Today, expectations has been expectations of others put onto you because you crave their recognition or expectation of outcome, results, 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 both of which you can't control but you expect them to happen, which creates an awful kind of anxiety, if you like, because you believe that's real. So mm. especially kids and teenagers going, the only expectations over you is how hard you train or study or practice or whatever it is and your mindset, the stories you tell yourselves. 
But anything else, expectations of others, they're not real. So don't listen to them, you know, and kind of separate that. Set your own goals but don't make them expectations because mm. you can't control it. And, and don't let it in, stuff that doesn't serve you. Yeah, Isn't totally. part of your story. I think that's keep your own story. Yeah. Yeah. Clear to yourself. Yeah, own your story. Yeah, that's awesome, Ben. Um, we always like to end all of these conversations by asking our guest, uh, well, acknowledging that life can be messy and non-linear, as, mm. as we've talked about today, uh, and pretty complex for the best of us. Uh, and uh, in the context of all of that, who do you think is doing human really well? Oh, great question. Who's doing human very well? Um, my mum. Mm. Um, she's 91 years old, just got into a nursing home through through COVID. And, you know, the six kids, we're all stressed and worried and so forth. And her perspective is so powerful and beautiful and humble, if you like. Um, so I think she's doing it in, incredibly well. Angelina Jolie, I've always been impressed with her perspective on things. Um, at least in my world, people who get through the entertainment industry, Hugh Jackman, mm. I'm really impressed with his perspective, if you like. And, and I'm, I guess I'm deliberately using people who in my industry can get really distracted but have managed to keep that perspective. Matthew McConaughey, uh, my wife, <laughs> Sally, I think she does human very, very well. People who just, yeah, have a certain – I guess call them horizontal relationships. They don't put people above them or below them, um, but they have a genuine care or compassion for others. I'd, I'd say that people who are doing it pretty well. Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty good list, isn't it? I don't think your path has been as ad hoc as you think it has. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll leave you with that. And thank you for your time today, Ben. I know you've got a busy schedule and um, so many messages for so many people, for teenagers, for parents for athletes for humans and that's what human cogs is all about so thank you for joining us pleasure sabina pleasure mads thanks so much for joining us for this episode of human cogs we know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com. 